The Bible then goes to the next item, which is the table of showbread. So God backs out of the Holy of Holies through the veil, and he goes to this table here, which is called the table of showbread. Now, this is also gold. Everything inside the tabernacle is gold or blue curtains or fabrics. This lid, by the way, these bars here are for carrying. You're not allowed to touch these items. You're only allowed to touch the bars. The table of showbread is a table. And what this is supposed to be is the banquet table of God. It's the banquet table of God. It's where we eat with God. It has 12 loaves of bread on it that the priests are to restore every week. So they bake 12 loaves of bread without leaven or yeast because yeast symbolizes corruption. So it's totally without yeast. They bake 12 loaves of bread because the 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of God. And so they put it on this table, and at the end of every week, the priests take it off and they eat the bread, and then they bake new bread and they put it on there. Now, I don't know if the bread looks like that, but <laughs> perfect little circles. Um, but that was not an uncommon way to make unleavened bread in the ancient world, even today. So what's the point here? They also has a jar of olive oil. Now, the bread symbolically represents the provision of God in the wilderness. So this is God providing for their needs so that they could eat. Olive oil symbolically represents the anointing of God. That's why priests, kings, and prophets always have oil poured on their head because they're being anointed by God, which means anointing is the word is a Hebrew word that we pronounce Messiah. Jesus was not the only Messiah. There were lots of Messiahs in the First Testament, lots of anointed ones. When David's like, how could I kill Saul, God's anointed one? He's basically saying, how could I kill God's Messiah? That's what he was saying. The word Messiah gets translated into Greek as Christ. So Jesus is not Jesus Christ. That's not his name. His name is Jesus, the anointed one, meaning he's the chosen one of God to be your leader. So this, what this meant was that every Israelite was anointed by God to be his people. And what it symbolically represents is that all 12 tribes are allowed to sit at the banquet table of God and eat with him because they've all been chosen by God to be his people. Now remember, to eat meals with somebody in the ancient world was we're in a covenant relationship together, we're a family. And so this symbolically represents you sitting in the banquet table of God, eating a meal with him because you've been chosen by God. They are not allowed to all literally eat there because they're full of sin. But that's why when Christ comes along, he fulfills it because he literally has a meal and he says, this is my body broken for you. And they're eating with him. And he then lives inside of us to eat every meal with us because we all become the anointed, the chosen ones of God. And then God, remember Jesus told a lot of parables about the great banquet day and the day that he would go out and find all the like the rejected and the poor and the orphans, and he would invite them to the banquet table because the rich were too important to go to this. And Ezekiel talks about a great banquet day, and the two chapters in Revelation are focusing on a banquet with God. And so basically what this is looking forward to is one day we will literally all sit at the banquet table of God and we will all eat with him because we won't have sin in us anymore where only a few priests were able to get in there and only eat a couple loaves, we will actually be in the heavenly tabernacle eating a full meal with God for all eternity. So this represents sitting at the table with God, which represents relationships. 
And it would be a constant reminder of how God provided for their needs in the wilderness. Then we move to the other side of the tabernacle. On the other side of the tabernacle is the lampstand. The lampstand was a golden lampstand, and it had seven branches to represent the seven days of the week, the seven days of creation. This represents the light of God. So basically, symbolically represents the light of God, which is the life of all man, dwelling with Israel for all seven days of the week, the complete dwelling of God, the complete presence of God, the complete creation week, that God is constantly completing creation in you. Now, in the branches, they were to carve two things. They were to carve almonds, like the nut, and they were to carve almond buds, like the bud that flowers. So basically, what this candle stand looks like is a tree. Now, why almonds and why almond flowers? One, almonds were typically associated with new life in the ancient world. Why? Because almond trees in Israel are the first trees to blossom every spring. Now, I'm not saying they're the first tree to blossom everywhere in the world, just what Israel grew and what Israel could have. Almonds were always the first thing to blossom, which means it was the first sign of life every year. It was a new life. And almonds are really sweet. Okay, if you've ever had almond milk, and I don't mean like the watered-down almond milk at the grocery store, but almonds are sweet. And remember, everything is really sweet to people in the ancient world because they don't have Snicker bars and Kit Kats and, <laughs> and like Kool-Aid, which is really just sugar and water. Um, they don't have all that stuff, and they definitely don't do Halloween. So almond, honey, milk, that's all really sweet to them. So this represents the sweetness of life that God brings, the life that God brings because of the light of mankind and the first life, the new life that God brings. And it would remind them of the tree of life. Okay, we'll come back to that at the very end when we finish talking about the tabernacle. And so, of course, how did Christ fulfill this? Well, he fulfilled the table of showbread by saying, I am the bread of life. So he is saying, I... Now, you have to understand that. i backing up a little bit because I forgot to make this point. But when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, who's the only person that provided bread for the Jews and, or the Israelites in the wilderness? So what is he saying? I am God. I am not just God who provides you the bread of life, but I am the bread of life. I'm the only thing that keeps you alive. And then he goes on and says, and this is my body, the bread of life broken for you, meaning only my death can keep you alive. That's how you eat me, so to speak, is by accepting my death and resurrection. And that's why a lot of Jews were like, what, you want us to be cannibals? But it was all symbolic. Then he comes along and he says, I am the light of the world. And later we're going to be told in the book of First John, God is light and in him there is no darkness. And the gospel of John, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word was the light of all mankind. The light came into the darkness. The darkness did not accept nor receive the light. Okay, so Christ is claiming to be the light. And so basically he fulfills this by literally being the only light that truly will keep us alive and actually fulfills us. Next item. He talks about the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is this entire tent, these two rooms. So this is what the tabernacle looks like. Zooming in, you see this. So the first thing they're going to do is they're get acacia wood and they're to build all these two-by-four-like things. They're not literally two-by-fours, but... 
studs. And then they're to build little rings on each stud and then put crossbars through them. So basically there's no nails involved. It means they can pull these bars out and then all the studs collapse and they can carry it away pretty quickly. And they just set them back up and they put the, the bars back through it. Everything is gold plated on the studs because that represents the glory of God. Then they are to put four fabrics over the top of it. The first fabric is a blue linen fabric. And so this thing drapes over, so between the gold you see blue. And so the blue is to have red and gold stitching in it, because red represents sacrifice. Because that's the only so basically when you walk in, it's like you're walking to heaven. Everywhere you see, you see blue because that's the sky, and gold because it's the glory of God. So this becomes heaven. You walk into heaven and you see the gold stitched into the fabric and the gold on the beams, and that's the glory of God. You see the blue because it's a spiritual realm. So you feel like you're in the spiritual realm because it's all blue. And then you see a little red in it because the only way that you were able to even get in there was because of a sacrifice. And so when you walk in, this place is beautiful, deep blue, lots of gold. And seven, and not talking about little candles like what you burn at home, we're talking about oil lamps, so flames the size of your hand, and a room that's 15 feet by 30 feet, and you have eight, seven flames that are the size of your hand lighting up all this gold. It is beautiful. You're just supposed to be wowed by this. The next fabric that goes over top of that is a ram skin. They're to kill all these rams, stitch all their skins together, and drape it over because rams represent substitutionary sacrifice. The next skin you drape over is goat skin, and they're to dye them red. Goats represent sin and rebellion. Red represents atonement, sacrifice. And the next one you're to drape over is porpoise skins. Now, we don't know whether this is sea cows or like dolphins. Most people think it's sea cows, but some kind of porpoise. And you're like, where do they get porpoise in the middle of the wilderness? The Red Sea. The Red Sea actually had a lot of porpoises during that time period. Now they're extinct because that's what we do. We kill everything. But so they had porpoise skins. This would waterproof it. It would help protect it from the heat of the sun. It, it would be like putting like rolling out tar on top of your roof. Or not tar, but um, yeah, ru rubber rolling. There's actually rubber that you can unroll and you then nail on your roof and it waterproofs everything. It's usually flat roofs like restaurants and stuff, not like a house. But it would protect it. What's going on here? When you look at the tabernacle from the outside, it's porpoise skins. You ever seen porpoise skins at the zoo? They're not beautiful. They're like black and scarred and like not even a consistent black or gray. <laughs> so you look at this thing, you're like, oh, it's just porpoise skins. But the only way you can get to God is sin is separating you. But the sin is taken over or atoned for by the blood of an animal sacrifice. That's the goat skin. So this, it's what it's telling you is the only way you get to tabernacle is you're separated by sin, but it requires a blood sacrifice to get through that sin, to undo the barrier, which then leads you to the ram skin, which is a substitutionary sacrifice, which teaches you the only way you can get in is through a substitutionary sacrifice. So the outside one is you. It's the ugliness of sin. The second two remind you the only way you can deal with that sin is through substitutionary atonement sacrifices. Then once you've dealt with that, then you're able to enter the beauty of the tabernacle and the glory of heaven. And so basically what it's saying is, remember that Jesus was God-man. And the man is not very impressive. It's like a porpoise skin. 
But when God, Jesus revealed the glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration, he shone with light and beauty, and heaven was opened up, and Elijah and Moses stood next to him. And so this represents the two natures of Christ. The fact on the outside he was a man, but on the inside he was a God. And I don't mean that literally. I don't like, it's not like he was an egg. Okay, I'm just, that's for lack of better words because I have no other words to describe how he's two natures at the same time. But that's kind of what was going on here. And so basically, how did Christ fulfill this? Christ became the tabernacle. Now this one we're used to, but remember, Christ, first John, the Gospel of John begins with, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it says, and the Word came and dwelt with mankind. That's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says that the word tabernacled among us. So John, the Gospel of John, begins by literally calling Jesus the tabernacle. And then now the tabernacle is coming and dwelling with us. And that tabernacle is also the light of mankind. But he's coming into the darkness, the porpoise skin, so to speak. Then in John chapter 2, around verse 28 and 29, it says, Jesus says, tear down this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they said, oh, how can you do that? It took us 40-something years to build this thing. You're going to do it in three days? And they says, they did not know that he was talking about his body, his death and resurrection. So it's his body. So he's saying, I am the temple. Now, at the very end, he then says, at the upper room, he's breaking the bread and he says, in my, and then he goes over and over, he says, my father's house, my father's house. Tear down my father's house, in three days I'll rebuild it. So he's calling the temple his father's house. And then he says the temple is him. So what is his father's house? It's him. So at the very end he says, I have to go away from you and prepare a place for you. Which means his death and resurrection. And when I prepare a place for you, I will prepare many rooms in my father's house. Who's the father's house? He is. He's not talking about preparing a place for you in heaven. Now, I'm not saying he's not. But what he means is, I'm going to the cross to die on the cross so that you all can come and dwell with me. Right now, only the high priest can go into my father's house one time a year. But when I go to the cross and die, what happens when he dies on the cross? The veil was torn open. And when that veil turns open, there will be many rooms inside of me for you to dwell. And in that whole context, he says, remain in me and I'll remain in you. Over and over and over again. He is not talking about some distant heaven. He's talking about right now. You are in your father's house right now. It's the already not yet. You're already there because Christ is in you and you're in him. But it's not yet because we're not literally physically there. In that He's talking about both. He's talking about the now and the then. The spiritual and the physical. He's preparing a room for you. And what he's basically saying is going to make all of you the holy of holies. And so when you see him, he's saying, I am the temple. And then later we're told in John, 1 John, or sorry, 1 Peter, Peter says, you are a temple of God. Christ is the foundational stone and you're all living stones being built into him, which means we become the temple. Why? Because the temple is in us. And then Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we're the dwelling place of God. So over and over and over again. And then what happens in the book of Acts? The little, the pillar of fire comes and dwells on us. Notice it's not one big giant pillar of fire coming down on a temple. 
It's a whole bunch of little pillars of fire coming in all of us because we're all tabernacles, but we're all tabernacle stones being built into the tabernacle of Jesus Christ because he's prepared a room for all of us to live in him. So technically right now we are in our father's house and he is in us because Christ became the atonement sacrifice. See, when Paul and all of them are using this language, they assume you already know all this. Because what were these Jews doing every single week in festival? They were walking up to this and making sacrifices. And when Paul starts using language like that, he's using their language. And so Christ is saying, I fulfill this. I am literally going to become the house of God. And I'm going to make all of you priests to dwell in me. And my death and resurrection is going to prepare a place for you to dwell in me. And so he's fulfilling this. Does that make sense? Is this cool? This is not afterthoughts. God's not like, hey, let's kind of say I'm Father's house. This is all pre-planned from the beginning of creation. And that brings us to the veil. The veil is this curtain that separates the two rooms. The greater room, as in just larger, and the smaller room the Holy of Holies. Now this veil is basically what the picture shows. It's a lot of purple with some blue and red and gold. It has all the colors um, that we talked about, except for the bronze and the silver. So it has the blue and the purple, which represents the royalty in the spiritual realm. It has the gold, which represents the glory of God. And it has the red, which represents sacrifice. This curtain is a veil that only the high priest, once a year can go through. Now, this curtain is supposed to be seen as an incredible barrier between the people and God, keeping them, separating them from entering into the presence of God. And once again, only the high priest with the blood of a goat can go in there and only temporarily for like however long it takes them to pour the blood on the altar, do the incense and get out. That's all that he's allowed. Because even the most holy, most righteous man in all of Israel only has minutes in this room once a year. And we'll talk about that sacrifice more when we get to Leviticus in chapter 16. But the veil is thick. It's supposed to be heavy. It's not like a curtain that parts in the middle. It's all one piece of fabric. So by the time Solomon comes and builds the temple, his temple is way bigger than the tabernacle. And he's going to build a tabernacle. When he builds a veil, he's going to make the veil multi-curtained, like in layers, stitched together so that it'll be 18 inches thick. So now, if you've ever moved a curtain, like on stage of a play in high school or in college or something, those things are heavy. And those are only like an inch thick, maybe at the most. So we're talking about 18 inches. It was not uncommon for them to hook hooks on the edge of the curtain and have several men pulling this thing back so that he can squeeze through. The point of it was just to try to emphasize how much you are barred from the presence of God because of your sin. And that's a lot of what the tabernacle is trying to communicate is that sin is keeping you away from God. How did Christ fulfill this? What's interesting is that Christ actually did not fulfill this item in the tabernacle. This is one of the very few things that he did not fulfill because he did away with it. I mentioned last week that when he died on the cross, the veil was ripped. And the significance of this is you're talking about that by the time they have the temple during Christ's time, 
We're talking about a three to four story tall curtain by that point. And so this thing is ripping from top to the bottom. Which one, if you have an 18 inch thick curtain, there's no way that like anybody is like ripping it. I mean, we can barely do telephone books, let alone this curtain, ripping it all the way up. Second, this isn't going from top or from bottom to top, it's going from top to bottom. And this is really high. And so the point is that Christ's death on the cross has destroyed the veil. This is why Paul in Ephesians chapter one, chapter two, I'm pretty sure it's two, but might be one talks about how the barrier wall between God and us has been torn down. And what's interesting is there, Paul is actually making a reference to two barrier walls. He's talking about the barrier wall, the veil that's been torn down between us and God, and the barrier wall as in the courtyard fence, which we're going to be talking about a little bit later, that's been torn down between the Jew and the Gentile, allowing all people to flow in, both all ethnicities, all to God. And so that Christ's death and resurrection has torn that down to the point that now we become the Holy of Holies. We have direct access to God because we are the Holy of Holies. And not only that, Hebrews chapter, um, I think it's four, tells us that Christ has entered into heaven through the heavenly veil, meaning the sky. This is supposed to be a physical representation of the sky. And that the sky is kind of like a cosmic veil between us and God, because we can't look up and see heaven. We just see a sky, a curtain. And so that Christ has gone through the sky into the heavenly place where he sits at the right hand of God. And then it says that he's become our anchor. And I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but the way that it's using the word anchor there is the anchor in the sense of you have no wind and you're sailing. You throw your anchor out ahead of you. It goes into the water, hits the ground, and then you pull yourself towards the anchor. And you just keep doing that over and over. And so Christ goes into the heavenly place through the veil, anchors himself to us, and then he pulls us into the heavenly place because he's torn down the burial wall. And so not only is he the body, his body is the tabernacle, but he's literally tearing down the veil. So there's no separation between us and him. So like I mentioned before, this is one of the very few things that he does not fulfill because he actually does away with it. And that is the whole true significance of the cross.